All right, good morning. It's a blessing to be here with you this morning to praise the Lord and worship Him together. Um, we're entering the Christmas season, and this morning we're going to talk about um, a terrorist turned missionary. And so, uh, that doesn't seem like it necessarily fits, but if you think about it, it actually, it actually does. Um, so, this morning we're going to look at the life of Saul. Uh, we know him more as the Apostle Paul. Um, as we refer to him more by his Greek name than we do um, his Hebrew name. Um, But we'll refer to him mostly as Saul this morning because that's how he is in the passages of Scripture and how he is when we we meet him because he is still more uh, in a Hebrew context at this point. But that's not going to uh, stay the same for his life. And so we're in Acts chapter 9. Our goal this morning is the uh, first 31 verses of Acts chapter 9. But um, before we get into that, I, I want to just remind us where we've been so far in the book, because the book of Acts is a progression. It's, it's telling a story, and that story begins with Jesus back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says to his you know, disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, at this point, we've had um, Jerusalem. Um, has been witnessed to, Judea has been witnessed to. In the last week, uh, two weeks ago, we really saw Philip um, in the in the area of Samaria and and preaching the gospel there. Um, and we've started to see to the uttermost parts of the earth. As last week, uh, we had Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch and how um, he, you know that Ethiopian eunuch was um, a convert to Judaism, but as he goes to Jerusalem to worship. Um, on his way back home, he ends up meeting Philip and gets explained the Word of God more thoroughly, uh, particularly as he's reading from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 and comes to understand that that is the prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. And so now he's going to take that message back to Ethiopia and he's going to travel all the way through Europe, I mean through Egypt, and you know that he's going to be telling people about his experience and about who he's met. So that, that gospel is now you know, headed south into a in, in a powerful way. And we remember that there was a church, the church has been active and alive um, in Ethiopia long before it was um, in the European um, nations and in many other parts um, of the earth. So uh, with that in mind, let's go to Lord in prayer and then we'll get more on to Saul. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. To look into your word, please teach us and instruct us by it. Lord, help us to say yes to you, regardless of what you ask us to do, um, in all things in our lives, Lord. Lord, we see the testimony of those who have gone before us, lives of sacrifice, lives of people who care more about you and about others than they did themselves. Lord, we thank you for their testimony and for their witness. Lord, help us to follow in their footsteps. Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us, um, but that most of all, you are concerned that we become more and more like your son, Jesus. And that is your goal uh, for us, dear Father. And so we thank you that we haven't been left um, without hope, but even as in, in this season, we remember specifically that you sent a light and a hope for us. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you are that light, that you are that hope, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. 
So we, we first are introduced to Saul in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 7 as he's holding the clothes of the men who are stoning Stephen to death. And he is in full agreement that this should be done as it says in, in chapter 8 verses 1 through th- 3, now Saul was consenting to his death, at Stephen's death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church was at, which was at Jerusalem And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And so we see that contrast as... Saul is, is creating havoc in the church and dragging people off um, you know, to prison that those who are being scattered and those who are escaping, whether, whether they're being thrown in prison or they're being um, you know, scattered abroad, they are sharing the good news of Jesus where they go. It's a message that they can't contain them themselves, even though that message comes at a great personal cost and under great threat and duress uh, for themselves. So again, we had... Uh, in chapter eight, those stories of, of Philip as the example, as an example, going to Samaria and then going south and running into the Ethiopian eunuch and on the way to Gaza, and we saw uh, that great event last week. But chapter nine begins, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so Saul is expanding his terroristic activities. Um, And he's actually, in a a way, he's got a a license for his his brand of of terrorism, um, as he has the the leading, the high priest and the leading um, officials back in Jerusalem saying, yes, you know, go in and do this, because they have a certain amount of, of authority and autonomy within the Roman Empire um, that they are under. They still have a certain amount of things that they can do um, with their own people. Um, he would not be authorized to go and to you know, arrest uh, someone who was a, a Roman citizen that had you know, become a follower of, of, of Jesus. He wouldn't be allowed to do something like that. But any of the Jewish people who were in any of these places where he could get permission from his leaders and authorities, that was viewed by the Romans as, okay, you can, you, know, you can do that. You can clean house among your own people if you so desire to do so. And so he has, in a certain way, a, a licensed terrorism. But if you think about terrorism as the use of violence and threats of violence to coerce people into living in a way that they don't want to live... Um, so he was terrorizing, Saul was terrorizing the church, and his goal was to put people in prison uh, and to do away with people that couldn't be coerced into following, into leaving the way. Um, so, you know, those he couldn't, co- they couldn't coerce through the threats they would try to get and to put into prison. And they want to make, they want to have a fear associated with this so that people are afraid to join the believers and to become part of this movement that's known as the way. And it's kind of cool that it's known as the way, because remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so when Jesus said, I am the way, you know, that his followers started to associate themselves with that, with that phrase. 
um, and to be known in that. It's not until later on in the book of, of Acts that, that they're first called Christians, and they don't call themselves Christians, which is also an interesting you know, thing. We kind of can get hung up on that, that word. But the key thing is that people are believers in Jesus and that they're part of the way. Um, today, many people are part of larger Christianity who are not part of the way, who are not really followers and believers in Jesus. They have a cultural faith, a cultural faith. But we would ask, as the scripture does, where is the, where is the fruit? Because if there's not fruit, then there's usually not true faith. Those things go hand in hand. You know, what is the evidence? And so, you know, you have confidence in your salvation. If we ask you, what is the evidence of your faith? And there is the conviction of the Holy Spirit when you sin. That is an evidence of faith. There's a desire to share the love of Jesus and the good news of Jesus with other people. That is an evidence of faith. When you used to you know, do things that were dishonest or to cheat, and now you don't, that is an evidence of a change. That is an evidence of, of faith. But if there's, if there's not evidence, if you, if you say, there is no evidence, I live the same way as I did before. I, before I said I followed Jesus, I lived the same way as I did then. If there's not victory, there's not any victory over sin. There's not any change in life and perspective and goals and values and attitudes. Then is that person really a follower of Jesus? Or just a cultural Christian which is of no value? That's of no value. And in fact, it's the dangerous thing. It's the dangerous thing. Because people think... That they have, that they're in this safe place with God when they're not. It'd be better, better to be an atheist, better to be an agnostic, better to be something else entirely than to be a person who thinks they're, they're a Christian, but is not a Christian. That's the most dangerous, I believe that's the most dangerous position you can be on, be in on this earth. Is to think that you're right with God and to not be. That's a, and we have many people, and I say that because we have many people in our culture for here, here particularly in the Bible Belt, you know, of the South, and it's still the Bible Belt, and you know, Christianity is still the the religion that people associate themselves with. But for many, it's just that it's a it's a religion. It's their attempt to have the bigger questions of life, you know, satisfied. And, and for many, it's just an intellectual thing. As well, or it's an acknowledgement, there's an intellectual acknowledgement of the facts, you know, you know, my wife's testimony, Claire's testimony is, is, is largely like this. There's, there's a significant period in her life where if you asked her, who died on the cross for your sins, the answer is Jesus. You know, is there, is there a God? Yes. Does he have a, you know, a son, the son of God? Is that Jesus? Yes. Did he die on the cross for your sins? Yes. Did he rise from the dead? Yes. Is he your savior and king? No. No, he's not. Because a person can know all the things in their mind and yet still not be a believer in Jesus, still not be a follower of Jesus. It's important that we we understand that. Because in these days, in this time when the early church, people are not casually 
culturally being part of the church. Why, why would you do that? When it could cost you your life, when it could mean that your family would be ripped apart. You know, that, that's part of the terrorism of, of, of Saul here, is that he's literally ripping families apart. He's taking, you know, husbands away, um, wives away. He's taking fathers away, mothers away from their children. He is ripping families apart in his terrorism. Why would anybody join that unless they were fully convinced and committed that Jesus is the Savior? And they were willing to submit their entire lives to him. But, you know, now we preach the gospel many times in such a way that it's like we're asking people, hey, this is only going to be a benefit to your life and there's no cost. And that's how we preach it a lot of times. That, that you know, you, you just follow God, you believe in Jesus, and, and he's just going to make your life so much better. Well, yeah, you know, that's true. That's true. I can't imagine my life without Jesus. Yes, it is so much better. But it's not better in a lot of times the way the, that being better in that context is being defined. It's being turned, turned into this, a short, almost like a short circuit to a, to a self-help program. You know, you could go through these 12 steps and have a better life, or you could have Jesus and have that same better life that you're searching for. Well, this life for these first followers of Jesus could get them killed, get them thrown into prison, or have them lose, you know, things that most of us, we hold dear and valuable. It's not a casual thing. It's not a cultural thing. And, and, and we've done it, it, it a, a disservice by allowing it to become such a thing. What is walking with Jesus without cost? Is it actually walking with Jesus? Because I just, I mean, as much as I search for it in the scriptures, I, I, I can't find it. I can't find anybody following God and it not cost them anything. That we know any bit of their story. Yet we assume today that we can follow Jesus and we can encourage others to follow Jesus and there's not going to be a cost. What is that? We've cheapened the faith. And in, in, in our love, and we want the bar to be really low, I think, so everybody can enter in. But in, in, in that process, I'm afraid we, we've actually changed the, the message entirely. And, and it's more like a used car salesman. It's more like a used car salesman who says, here, I mean, this car... Is, is awesome. It's going to get you where you want to go. It has great gas mileage. It's going to get you there fast. It's going to do all these things. And then the person gets into it and it's not all that they were told it was. And they go, wait a second. Following Jesus is kind of hard. Oh, yeah, that too. I mean, yeah, of course. It's hard. Well, wait, why, did, why didn't you tell me that before? I mean, shouldn't that be part of our our gospel message that yes, Jesus is a savior. Yes, he offers forgiveness. Yes, there's no other way. Yes, you know, you, your, your best life, that is true. Your best life is with Jesus. But there's also, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. And we're going to hit that a little bit more here. But remember that as far as this terrorism that was going to come upon them, 
the apostles at least would have remembered the words of Jesus in John 16, 1 through 4. He says, I told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they have known the fa- they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you a little while longer. And then he goes on to say how he's leaving, but the Holy Spirit will come, their advocate. And that's better for them to have the Holy Spirit with them. It's better that Jesus goes to the cross, is crucified, is risen, and ultimately ascends back to the Father. But he, he warned them that these things are, you know, these things are going to happen. They're going to drag you out of the synagogues. Those who kill you think they're doing a holy service for God. And you know, that's really the, the saddest part of the whole story with Saul there at the death of Stephen, really the murder of Stephen. And he is saying, yes, this is, this is good, is that Saul is so, um, so blinded that he thinks that what they're doing is for God and that it pleases God and that it makes God happy. That's how blind that he is. And when he's going and he's ripping these families apart and he's throwing people into jail, he's thinking he's doing God a service. He's thinking he's doing God a service. You know, and, and, you know, they weren't the only ones that had this problem. I mean, throughout time, even today, people who commit terrorist activities are often under an illusion that they are doing a, a service to God. They're doing something that pleases God. Sometimes their motivations, even though they're doing evil, their motivations are not necessarily always based on evil. And so that's a a scary thing indeed. But this is what happens. And so now back to Saul, verse 3 of chapter 9. It says, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I want to stop right there for a moment at this Dramatic scenes. This is one of the most dramatic scenes of all of Scripture. As you know, as Saul is on his way to Damascus, he's there to persecute the church further. And on his way, this light shines. It's blinded, blinded him. He falls to the ground, and there's this voice that says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And you know, they, who's who? You know, he wants who's talking to me. Because he knows what he's, I mean, is it, it, is Stephen, you know, maybe is, it, is Stephen back, you know, what's going on? But there's not really not much time here. I don't know how deep his thoughts get. But really quickly, you know, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. He, he, you see here even, really, he has a sense that he's in the presence of divinity. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And this is how... Closely, Jesus is, you know, we're called the body of Christ. How closely Jesus and the church are connected, that to, to persecute the church is 
to persecute Jesus. Because there is that, that intimate connection that cannot be separated. So to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And when I say the church there, I, I mean you know, the true church the, that are... The, it's not an institution, it's not buildings that are, that are being persecuted. It's the people, the followers of Jesus Christ. And here, Jesus doesn't give a big, long speech. He has his attention. He has Saul's attention. He says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And, and this whole instance here is just to, to grab Saul's attention in a way that Saul cannot deny it. Or get away from it. It says, The men, verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now this obviously, he's affected. If he, you know, he can't, he can't see he doesn't eat or drink anything for three days. I mean, he is in a state, you know, here. And during those three days, you have to imagine what is going through his mind as he recognizes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. As he recognizes that he was wrong and that all that he was doing was wrong. And he's, you know, probably the scene of Stephen being stoned and what Stephen said, you know, as he sees the Lord, and then says, you know, Father, forgive them. You know, that those scenes are playing over, and he- over in his head. The scenes of, of him going and, and grabbing men and, and women and, and dragging them off and, and destroying these families and throwing people into prison. Those scenes are, are probably being played in his head. And he has to come to the grips with, of his guilt and what he's done. And who God really is. And he has to, you know, I'm sure in those times he's going back as he, of all people, was a very learned and skilled individual with the Old Testament scriptures, and now he's got to go back. And in those old stories of the persecution of the prophets, and he realizes that he, was, he thought he was on the right side of the story, and it turns out he was on the wrong side of the story. That he was like those who persecuted Jeremiah. That he understands, he comes to a, a new understanding of himself in relation to God. In verse 10, it says, There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Man. Think about that. I mean, these Old Testament allusions that are here. You know, you go back to, to Samuel as a boy. You know, and in his bed at night, hearing this voice and running to Eli and say, did you call me? No. Did you call me? No. Hey, next time, ask God. He said, here I am, Lord. It just shows again, you know, People, we've got to understand our, our talents, are, we th- we're thankful for every talent God's given every person. But ability isn't the key thing that God looks for. It, it's availability. 
here I am, Lord. Here I am. Whenever the Lord calls and asks you to do something, you know, here I am. But listen, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And to the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now, there's just a couple things there. I mean, you love this, the here I am, Lord, part. Hey, rise and go to the street called Straight. You know, where did, where did God put Saul? He, absolutely. He puts him on the straight path. I mean, that's not just for any reason. I mean, that's, I mean, it's there. He's putting him on the straight path. He's, I mean, it's like, you're, here's what I want you to do. And it says he's praying. You better believe that Saul has been praying. Probably begging for forgiveness. Asking God what he's supposed to do. And it says, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias to come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So both Saul and Ananias are being told the position of the other and, and what the other one's gonna, you know, needs or is gonna do. But now Ananias in verse 13, he, he has a, a really reasonable thing here. He says, but Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now that is a reasonable fear that Ananias has. It's not like something he's just made up. Oh, I should be scared because what, no, it's not something just playing on in his mind or his head or his, you know, whatever, his fantasies. But it's a reasonable fear that he has. You know, some people might say, well, why, you know, why is he worried? It's the Lord who told him to go to Saul. Well, Ananias knows because he knows his Old Testament and he knows that what's already happened in the church early on, especially with Stephen, that doing what God says is not always the safest course in the physical realm. Doing what God says here is not the safest course. Uh, it reminded me of C.S. Lewis um, writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He has this conversation between Mr. Beaver and Susan about Aslan. And Aslan is a lion, the lion, the, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. you know, and so he understands. I mean, it's reasonable that Ananias says, well, like you led Stephen to his death, you might be leading me to my death too. God is good, but he isn't safe, at least as we define it in physical terms. But in spiritual and eternal terms, he is both good and he is also the only safe place. That's not a contradiction. But you have to choose where you seek your safety. You have to choose where you seek your safety. And ultimately, to have your, your, your safety in the eternal spiritual sense, in the right place with God, means to surrender your life here and now. And to, to, to surrender your own personal agenda where 
my safety is my highest value. It's to surrender that and to say, God, you're not my will, but your will be done. It's a surrender. Now, we are confident. You know, it was what the scripture says, you know, for in his hands, you know, no one can pluck us out of his hands. Like, there isn't a safer place in the eternal spiritual realm and all of that than in the hands of, of God. And in a different sort of way, I'll also contend that the physical side of it, there is a safety in doing the will of God. There is, a, there is a safety in that, but it's not the full sort of safety that we want to have, where we give ourselves this assurance that nothing bad can happen to us. Being in the hands of God, the safety of God is that when we are doing His will, then nothing can happen to us that God isn't okay with. And we have to trust Him that He is good, and that if He's okay with it, that that's ultimately my best. Stephen had his best life. It ended with stones being hurled at him till he died, but it was his best life. It was the best life that he could have on this earth because it was a life lived in the will of God and for the purpose of God. He might have been able to extend his physical days for a time if he had disobeyed the will of God. But that wouldn't have been his best life and it certainly wouldn't have been a safe life because, again, you know, what did Jesus say to us? Not to fear those who can only kill the body. But to fear the one who has the power to throw you into hell. You know, like if you're going to have any fear, it's toward God. It's like, but now our fear toward God is mitigated. And it's not the same sort of fear that we would have a person who doesn't have God should have. But if you have Jesus and your fear is mitigated because he's your savior and he's taken all of your sin and you no longer have the fear of hell. But we should, even as followers of Jesus, have a respectful position that may be, in the scriptural terms, defined as fear towards God. There should be a fear of not doing God's will. There should be a fear of being disobedient to God. Why? Well, because he's God and he wants me to be like Jesus and he has the power to discipline my life. Because again, God's agenda is that we become more and more like Jesus. That's God's agenda for us. Is that we are more like Jesus. And so if we are drifting away from becoming more like Jesus, God is going to correct us and he does so in love. And discipline is a part of love. And think about that, you know, with a, with our children. We, you know, if we didn't discipline, that, there would be no love in that. You're just going to let them do things that harm themselves. You know, I mean, if, if we if if we just left it to our to our children, you can go to bed whenever you want to. You know, how miserable are they going to be? You know, at, you know, at school and and all of those things. And we say, oh, you just set your own bedtime. Eat whatever you want. Watch whatever you want on the television. Go to bed whenever you want. Would we call that love? That wouldn't be loving. That wouldn't be loving at all. Because it would hurt their lives. It would hurt their lives. 
wouldn't prepare them for life. And it would short-circuit their, their long-term you know, health. It would short-circuit so many things. And so discipline is a part of love. Yet somehow we think that in our relationship with God, as children of God, that discipline, we should just be able to do what we want and discipline shouldn't be any part of it. Well, we need discipline too. Don't think because you're, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old that you don't need God's discipline in your life. You need it. I need it. Because God is intent on making us to be who He's called us to be. Out of His love for us, He doesn't, you know, He doesn't want us to settle. He doesn't want us to make these bad trades where we take the things of God and trade them for temporary things and temporary pleasures of sin that don't satisfy and, and, and ultimately harm us and those around us. God doesn't want that for us and for our lives. So the scripture says, whom he loves, he disciplines. So here we go, verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, God, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, there's a couple things here that are just we can't, you know, undeniable and, and that are important in the context and important for us because sometimes we, we do try to appropriate everything that happened to every character in the Bible, like to people, you know, my life, your life, people's lives today. That can be a dangerous, a dangerous thing. We can have no doubt because God said it that God chose Saul to be his chosen instrument to go to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And I will show him how much he would suffer for the sake of my name. That's related to his calling, and it's also related to the life that Saul had lived prior. Okay, Again, not every person is called to, to suffer in the same way that Saul is going to suffer. Not every follower of Jesus is going to get thrown in prison multiple times, getting beaten multiple times within an inch of his life. Jesus, be ship, shipwrecked, all these things. That's not what every person endures. So we don't go to the extreme and say, well, listen, you follow with Jesus, and I can guarantee you, I'm going to guarantee you, follow Jesus. Here, here what, here's what happened to Saul. What's going to happen to you? You're going to be beaten. You'll be shipwrecked. You'll be, you know, this, this is going to be your life. Well, that's not, again, that's an extreme that we, what I'm trying to get us to, to do on a lot of these things is to avoid the extremes in either direction. If you follow Jesus, this could be your life, but probably not. But I'm also trying to get us to avoid that, well, just follow Jesus and your life is, hey, apple pie all, every day, all day. Because probably not. And if we were going to move our pendulum one way or another, we'd move it a little bit more toward the persecution side than the non-persecution side. Why? Because the scripture tells us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
So we'd go that direction, but for most of us, not, it's not going to be to the extreme that it was for Saul. But for some it has been, and then there's, that's the question. Am I still willing to follow Jesus if that's what it means? Am I still willing to follow Jesus if he tells me to drop everything, to sell everything, to do away with everything, and go to a place where people are hostile against followers of Jesus, to move my family there, to live there, and try to preach the gospel among them? If that's what God asked me to do, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to suffer for his name and for his sake? And that's a question we have to come to grips with. And perhaps our prayer, a good prayer along those lines is, Lord, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Perhaps that's the prayer. Perhaps the prayer is, Lord, my spirit's not there either. Both my spirit and my flesh want nothing to do with that. So I need you to change my heart so I don't put restrictions on you, God. So I don't put you in a box and I don't put my life in a box of what you've called me or haven't called me to do, but that everything is always on the table, available. And that's a hard place to be. And I'm, I'll be the first to tell you that I'm not there all the time. I'm not there all the time. And this is a, for a different message, but that's one of the things where Paul preaches and he says that in some ways it's easier to be a single person. Because it's easier just to put yourself out there than it is to put your spouse out there and your, especially your children out there. But God does call people to do it. One of my, my, one of my very dearest friends and his family, he, did, he, he was living a pretty quote-unquote safe, comfortable life in North Carolina and now he's in one of the most dangerous nations on earth with his four children all little like all under the age of 12 God called him to do it and he was obedient and I look at that and I get on my knees and I say God help me to have that type of faith help me to have that type of obedience if you ask, if you ask me. Because that's not an easy thing. I mean, for, for me in my life, that, my friend there, he's a hero. He's a hero. He's a hero of my faith. Because a lot of people say, yes, I'll do whatever Jesus asked me to do. Well, that dude actually did it with his family. He's doing it with his family. And that's, that's inspiring. Because he's counted the cost. He's counted the cost and he, sa- he says, Jesus, you're worth it. He's counted the cost and said, Jesus, you're worth it. And his wife's counted the cost and says, Jesus, you're worth it. Now the kids, they just along for the ride. But his, the parents have the responsibility to know that God has called him to do it and to say that, yes, Jesus, you're worth it. Yes, Jesus, you're worth it. Now, 
you know, lots of this message, they're, they're hard because it's, it's, it's real. It's real. But God is going to use Saul to take that missionary work that, that Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in these places. God's going to use Saul to take that to a different level. He's going to go to a completely different level through his life and ministry. The rest of the book of Acts is going to bear that out. He's going to show the reality of that. Verse 17, so... Ananias is obedient. Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Uh, The order here is important. What happens you know, this was obviously God's call, you know, in those days. I mean, it's clear Saul has become a believer in Jesus. There's no doubt that this has happened. But just like these others in earlier in the book of Acts who haven't had a clear understanding of the Holy Spirit, he receives the Holy Spirit when these hands are, are put on him. He regains his sight. Then it says he rose and was baptized because that's a normal thing. You know, he wants to make that public profession of faith. What's happened privately in that time, in his encounter with the Lord, is now he's not going to be ashamed of that. He's going to put himself identifying with the church, where he now also puts himself as a target. He puts himself in a position of of danger with that. And he does so even before he eats. Because he understands that, again, the spiritual is more important than the physical. Spiritual things before physical things. So we have to understand that. Because a lot of times we want to put the physical things, our natural, our flesh will always put the the physical things before the spiritual things. We'll always put the physical things before the spiritual things. It's that, you know, that self-preservation that's within us. To eat, to have water, you know, these things we value, Right? But we, 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 our tendency is to always put the, the physical in front of the spiritual. And the challenge here, as we see in the life of Saul, is that now, I mean, the, the spiritual becomes, is more important than the physical and comes first. So he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Again, he couldn't now just indefinitely not eat and drink. I mean, it's human. Okay, so there are, are limits. So for, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the, son, in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So immediately, he's on mission with Jesus. Immediately, he starts preaching in the synagogue. And you can imagine their shock that this man who had been the greatest terror to the church is now advocating that Jesus is the Son of God, that people should you know, believe in him. I mean, you talk about a shift. That's going to that's get people's attention. 
this is it. And this is one of the reasons that God in His grace calls Saul is because of all people he could give testimony to his countrymen. And never lose sight of the fact that Saul loved his, his people. Never lose sight of that. In the book of Romans, he actually says that if he could make the trade, he would, that he would be damned and that all of Israel would be saved. Never doubt his love. But for the people who were in the same shoes that he was in, who rejected Jesus and said, no, he's not our Messiah. He's not the one. Because he, he was one of them and he identified fully with them. He knew and understood why they thought the way they thought. He understood their misunderstandings. And he loved them dearly. And no matter how many times they tried to kill him and to put his life away, he always contended for their good before God. He always contended for their good before God. He loved them dearly. But it says here in verse, because he's already starting to suffer. 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid for, of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. You know, they, they think this is an elaborate trick. Saul's going to say he'd become a disciple so that he can know exactly who we all are and take us out, all in mass. You know, and you can understand that fear. You can understand that thought process. But there's a man named Barnabas here in verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Okay. Now, I want to just mention a couple things here that are just important notes and will be done. First is that Barnabas recognized that this conversion was real. You know, perhaps he had insight from the Lord on that, but he had, he had that and Barnabas had enough um, respect in the church and the community that if he said this is for real, people took that and believed in his, you know, we already know from Barnabas earlier, he's, he's one who's made sacrifices for the good of the church. And he's viewed as an encourager, you know, he's known as son of encouragement. And so he, you know, so you can imagine him encouraging Saul in his new faith and encouraging the church to accept Saul in and to treat him like a brother and you know, a brother in Christ and, and not to distance themselves but to open themselves up to him. So Barnabas was this great advocate. And gave testimony. Maybe Barnabas had been, in, you know, been to Damascus, um, but he, or at least he's heard the message about how Saul preached there, and so he he knows there's the veracity of this, the truthfulness of this. And so Saul's there preaching, and it's interesting. How ironic is it 
that when he speaks and disputes again with the Hellenists, that just like the Hellenists killed one of their own, Stephen, now they're looking to kill Saul, who was there with them when they killed Stephen. So the same people that he's sitting there holding the coats for and saying, yeah, kill Stephen, are now trying to kill him. So the brothers learned this. They brought him down to Caesarea. We've mentioned Caesarea briefly before about this major port city, people from all over the world. This is where Philip has gone and where Philip sets up shop. I imagine that they met. Maybe Saul even learned a few things from Philip the evangelist on um, how to be a better evangelist. I mean, that's some um, speculation there. But I can't imagine Saul, the believers taking Saul down to Caesarea without introducing him to Philip. And, and them having some conversation there. You know, and, and you imagine that would be just part of the Lord's training in Saul's life. So they send him back to his home in Tarsus. They send him away for a little while. He's not going to stay in Tarsus. But he's going to go there. He's going to learn more. He's going to be better prepared to be a great missionary for the Lord. In verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What I want to say with this is because, you know, sometimes we can get confused about this. Okay, persecution is good and it's, it can be healthy for the church at times. As it was here, it was healthy for the church. The church multiplied and it spread. But an ongoing environment of persecution is not good and healthy. And, you know, that temporary persecution would purify the church. It lets everybody know who the real followers of Jesus are and who are not. And then, you know, things here settle down. And so sometimes when I say that persecution is good for our lives, it, it does grow us, but I'm, I'm not advocating for a life where you're just constantly persecuted. You know, I've, I've actually, I've preached here before, I think that in the United States of America, a season, you know, persecution would be good. I don't mean that as an, you know, like an ongoing state. Like, it would be great if followers of Jesus in the United States were always under persecution. That's not what I mean, but a period of persecution could be really healthy because it would purify the church because why would you really be a part of it, want to be a part of it if you didn't really believe it? But not advocating for an ongoing state of persecution like you have, for example, in North Korea, where the believers there are just, for decades now, constantly being murdered, constantly being thrown in prison, constantly being starved. Like, that's, you know, not advocating for that. The church is still going to grow in that environment. God's still going to do his work in that environment. But sometimes just a little bit of persecution is good for your life. Sometimes somebody at work giving you a hard time because you follow Jesus is good for your life. Sometimes if you're a student and a professor just laughs at you and makes fun of you publicly for your faith in Jesus Christ, that can be good for your life. Don't run from those sort of things. Embrace them. Embrace them. Because it, it, it can make you stronger in your walk and your faith with the Lord. And don't shy away in your places of employment about telling other people about Jesus. So what if you lose your job? Is that the, really the worst thing? Is that really the worst thing that can happen in your life? 
If the Lord has called you, talk to this person, talk to this person. Now, I'm not advocating that you walk in and make it so they have to fire you. I'm not advocating that. But I'm just saying, take out your fear. Take out, take away the fear and take, take out the obeying men above obeying God. Because that's what's happening a lot of times. Well, the rules say, blah, blah, blah. Well, God says, God says to share his word. And to share his love. Now, you can be smart and wise about how you do that and the approach you take and, you know, when you do that. Yes. But be willing to take some chances. Students, be willing to take some chances for your, for your God. You're, you're in a, you're in a, you need to know some of your stuff, but you're in a class and professors just blasting your, your faith and saying, you know, this is just a bunch of made-up stories and everything else. Challenge it. Challenge it. You, so what if you get a B instead of an A or a C instead of a B? Whatever. But stand up for, your, for, for Jesus and, and speak out His name. Because what we see, the testimony of the early church is, when Saul was doing the persecution... Those who were believers went and talked more about Jesus. Now when Saul is being persecuted, he's talking more about Jesus. It increases faith. It increases boldness. And we are, to, we are called to be a courageous people. We are called to be a clarion voice in our society where we just don't you know, say, well, people may not want to hear this, so we're not going to say anything. But we have to make sure that our message is on point. And the point of our message is Jesus Christ. We don't get distracted by all the side issues. Yes, there are times when we have to talk truth about side issues. But we keep the main point the main point. The main point is Jesus. Because he changes everything. And that's where the church has lost it a lot of times. The church will you know, go crazy about some point and And let that be the center of all the conversation. When Jesus has to be the center of our conversation. Jesus has to be the center of our conversation. Yes, there are issues we have to stay up, stand up and say, well, that's wrong, or that's right. We have to stand up against injustice. Yes. But Jesus always has to be the primary focus of our conversation because when people believe in him and follow him, they, they change. Like Saul stops being a terrorist stops being a terrorist. That's the sort of change that can happen in people's lives when they go, when they, when they believe in Him. When they believe in Him. And so, how do we pray? How do we pray? Whether it's a time of persecution or a time of peace, we pray that the Word of God will be multiplied in our community. We pray for those people who are antagonistic against the faith. We pray for the people who are like Saul, who are antagonistic, and we say, Lord, save them, because what a testimony to the rest of the community. Lord, save them. Work powerfully in their lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, help us to also meet those people of peace, those people like Barnabas, who, you know, everybody's willing to sit down and have a conversation with a Barnabas. Lord, help us to reach those people and can get into new communities. Help us to reach those people like Philip, who has the skills 
that can that can he can be in a lot of different communities and be comfortable and communicate effectively. Help us to reach people like that, Lord. And help us to grow people up and disciple and and be strengthened in our faith. But the main thing is that people would be strengthened in prayer and and, and through the Holy Spirit. Because it's not just an intellectual thing that we're trying to do here. Yes, we obviously care about information. Yes, we teach through the Word. Yes, we do these things. But people have to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit if, if we're to have any effect. Because you and your knowledge in your place of work or on, the, or on campus or wherever it is doesn't accomplish that much. But you filled with the Holy Spirit with some knowledge can accomplish a lot. But that knowledge is basically worthless if you're not filled with the Spirit. It's not going to change people's lives just to know some more facts about God. You have to see people who are filled by the Spirit who live in the Spirit. That's the testimony. That's the testimony that people need to be exposed to more and more. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. And as we take that bread and that cup this morning, we ask you to fill us with your Spirit and help us to walk in the Spirit and help us to be empowered, to be bold in our faith, not to shrink back, whether it's a time of peace or a time of persecution, whether it's a moment of peace or a moment of persecution, Lord, that we would be bold in your name. That whether we are in a relatively safe environment, and we speak for you, or whether you call us to the most dangerous place on earth and tell us to speak for you, that, Lord, we will be obedient to you and trusting you and counting you, Jesus, that you are worth you are worth it. You are worth the cost. Because we remember, Jesus, that no one else went to the cross on our behalf, that no one else could pay for our sins, that no one else gives us new life, that no one else gives us eternal purpose. That no one else can satisfy as you satisfy. No one else can give us a joy that's greater than our circumstance. That Jesus, you are everything to us. Lord, we agree that that is true. Help us to live that that is true. Help us not to be slaves to sin. Help us not to be slaves to our flesh, to our own desire. Help us not to be slaves to the laws of the enemy that will tell us that we cannot and that we should not. Free us from all of those things, Lord. Free us from ourselves. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. As we take that bread and we take that cup this morning, fill us that when we leave this place this week and this season as people are and all these holidays, that we would not be able to go through it without speaking your name and telling others of your great love. Lord, forbid us from being silent. Give us the courage, the boldness, the encouragement, and help us to encourage one another. Give it to us, Lord, we pray. In your precious name, dear Jesus, we ask it. Amen.